Welcome to the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast. If you're just a beginning gardener or you want good gardening information, well, you've come to the right spot. It may be February, but it's not too late for a New Year's garden resolution. Don't let your overhead sprinklers hit your vegetable and flower gardens. Our favorite retired college horticulture professor, Debbie Flower, will tell us why. We have tips for planting and caring for raspberries and grapes. Are you confused about all the shovel and pruner choices that are out there? We'll unearth the best shovel choices for your outdoor tasks, and we'll prune out those shears that you really don't want to use in your garden. Finally, we'll narrow the gap about dealing with physical and social distancing with your loved ones who need a hug. How about caressing them with your garden? We'll tell you how. It's episode 76 of the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast, and we'll do it all in under 30 minutes. Let's go. Here's a quick tip. Debbie Flower, our favorite college horticultural professor, joins us. And if you could change one aspect of your backyard garden, it might be be to eliminating overhead watering. Don't rely on your lawn sprinklers to hit the garden and take care of your vegetables because that might not be the best thing for those vegetables. Yeah, there are some diseases that can be easily spread by water and splashing water in particular. So water that comes from high in the air, like rain, or like your oscillating lawn sprinkler lands on the ground and splashes the soil up into the plant. And when that happens, if there are fungal diseases in your soil, they can get up into the plant and cause infection. And that's not a good thing. So if, if possible, a soaker hose is a better choice. Other problems with water coming from above are when it happens late in the day and the, the plant can't dry off and then the water gets trapped between, let's say, a couple of leaves and that allows fungus and bacteria that are sitting on the leaves of that plant to germinate and infect the plant. And so you're allowing disease into the plant. So again, a soaker hose might be the better choice for irrigating a vegetable garden. Soaker hose, drip irrigation. But I guess if you must use overhead watering for your vegetable garden, then probably do it early in the day. When I first gardened and didn't have a lot of money for a lot of supplies, I would use the overhead irrigation and just make sure that I did it early in the day. And then I had my plants on raised beds. They're not, they weren't fancy raised beds. I didn't have the money for that, but I would just dig the paths out and throw it up on the bed. And so they were a few inches raised, but that raised bed can help drain. It won't stop splashing necessarily, but it can help water drain away from the plant. And water around the stem of the plant can also be a problem. And whatever you do, do not employ the Farmer Fred first drip irrigation methodology. I believe it was the second year of my backyard garden. And I thought, okay, I don't need to buy a drip irrigation system. I'll just make one myself. So I took a 20 foot long PVC pipe and drilled holes in it. How clever. Hooked it up to a hose on one end, put an end cap on the other, and turned the water on. Well, the problem was most of the water, water, as you know, follows gravity, it went to the end of the pipe, and most of the water came out of the holes at the far end, and not much was dribbling out the holes closer to the source of the hose. 
Now, I guess if you want to try something like that, you would put uh, bigger holes towards where the hose end is and smaller holes at the end or the downhill portion of that pipe. Or you use a level. That is a problem with a, a soaker hose that you buy. They're soaker hoses that just uh, are made from porous material and the water oozes out. There are other soaker hoses that have slits in them and the water goes out the slits. But if that hose is either of those types of hoses on any kind of a slope, the water all goes to the bottom of the slope. So you have to dig a ditch or be very level to uh, get water at all the places you want. So the easier kind to build is uh, using drip irrigation parts. I love those uh, hoses. I use the quarter inch. It only has a it has a shorter run to it, but my vegetable garden is never so big that I need the longer run. Quarter inch drip tubing with uh, tortuous path emitters in them, and they're pressure regulated. So the emitter is buried right in the tube, and you can buy it with emitters at every six inches or emitters at every foot. And when you turn on the system, you it's like it's like I don't know Lincoln logs or something, Legos <laughs> or something. You 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 attach that to a supply line and you attach the supply line to your faucet and you have a backflow preventer and a filter uh, and you can put a timer in there. But the benefit of having those tubes with the tortuous path emitters in them is that water will come out of every hole, not just the one at the end of the line. And they will come out equally because they are also pressure compensating emitters. Yes, right. Now, the the unfortunate part is a lot of the quarter-inch tubing is sold in rolls of 25 feet, 50 feet, or 100 feet. Yes. But if, if you read the fine print very carefully on those packages, it'll tell you that the maximum run for a single line off of a main line for, for a quarter-inch line hooked into a, a half-inch line, that run may only be 17 feet or so. Right. Right. And so what I do, and I did this in my front yard, which is not vegetables, is put a supply line around the periphery, so down one side, across the bottom, and then for those 15 or 17 feet, and then up the other side. And so the, and across the top. So the supply line is a square and it's connected. And then I ran the quarter inch tubing from one supply line across the other one. Hmm. So I have just a whole lot of parallel lines of drip irrigation. So the whole bed um, is will get wet at the same time. Yeah, now we're going to get into the weeds of drip irrigation, and that has to do with the porosity of your soil. If you have a sandy soil, and especially in a raised bed, you will need to place those parallel lines closer together to make sure that all areas of the garden bed get water. Yes, Yes, and for my vegetables and annuals, I don't. I actually use uh, spray emitters. The bed, my raised bed. I do have an official raised bed now. Oh. Is only four by eight, so that's a small bed. And I have a supply line going all the way around and down the middle as well, so two feet. And then I put the the spray. There are micro sprayers, so there's still small amounts of water. The sprayers in the corners, and then periodically down the side and down the middle so that the whole bed gets sprayed because it is better drained soil. And when water hits better drained soil, it will soak in like the shape of a carrot. And if I'm starting seeds and that seed is not right where the water hits, it will never get wet. It will never germinate. 
So I want water all across the bed. So I want to spray it across the bed and get all of those uh, seeds wet. It can become an issue as the plants get bigger because the leaves of the plants can get in the way of the spray. So that's something I have to watch for. Gardening is kind of like chess. It's such a simple game to understand, but the more you learn about it, the more complex it gets. Yeah, but you know, there are no mistakes in gardening. They're they're just experiments. So we experiment every time we try something and we learn from it. We're talking with Phil Purcell from Dave Wilson Nursery. We're getting your berry patch planted. Berry plants are already arriving at area nurseries, and they'll be coming to nurseries throughout the United States in the coming months. Phil, let's talk about raspberries. We talked about blueberries and blackberries. Raspberries, also very popular. They're a bit more tender. They don't last as long in the refrigerator, but man, are they ever tasty. Yeah, absolutely. Raspberries, are they're not quite as easy to grow as, let's say, a blackberry, especially kind of, they're a little bit more sensitive to heat than, let's say, a blackberry is. So kind of depending on your location, they might need a little bit of shade help uh, in the summertime as opposed to blackberries, which will, you know, thrive in full sun. Yeah, you know, that's something we should uh, talk about regarding blueberries, blackberries, and raspberries, what sort of exposure they require. So raspberries, if you live in a hot sun summer area, maybe give them some afternoon shade. But blackberries, full sun, what about blueberries? Blueberries, they're one of those where if you're in a hot area, once again, I would put them more towards the location of a raspberry where you get, you know, morning to noon sun. And then afternoon, if, you, if you're in a very, you know, hot area, just give it a little bit of shade just to protect it. Exactly. Uh, this argument has been going on for as long as I can recall about where to plant blueberries. And it seems like the blueberry doesn't care very much if, from full sun uh, in, in cooler summer climates to uh, part shade in hot summer climates. They seem to do well. You could even try it in a lot of shade. You may not get the production, but I think you'll get some. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, I have blueberries underneath my oak trees. They're under shade almost all the time. They give us plenty of fruit, you know, for our morning cereals and such. You know, up in Oregon, they're growing in full sun. If you were to grow them in full sun in uh, in the Central Valley of California, it's mostly the intense heat that will burn a blueberry plant or even a raspberry plant. Let's talk about uh, some different raspberries. Now, when people think raspberries, they think red, but there are some very tasty yellow varieties of raspberries, like the there are. the Ann raspberry. The Ann and the fall gold. So those are the golden raspberries that you'll, you don't see as prolific as your regular red raspberries, but they you know tend to be a little sweeter, a little higher in sugar content. And uh, just a, a nice little different look than than your typical red raspberries. There aren't that many varieties. We grow Anne, we grow Fall Gold, whereas with you know raspberries, boy, we grow a lot of different varieties. What are the favorite varieties uh, among the staff there at Dave Wilson Nursery and among uh, your customers? Well, we really like Camby, and the reason why we like Camby is thornless. Mm. <laughs> it's the only thornless variety that we grow. Staff favorites would be like the Willamette, uh, Heritage. Those are classic varieties of raspberries that are very adaptable to a lot of different locations. 
a new one that is out there is known as raspberry shortcake. So kind of like its sister plant, the baby cakes blackberry, this raspberry is meant for container gardens. So once again, you know, you can have blueberries, blackberries, and this raspberry shortcake in a container out in your patio if you don't have room for a vine. Let's talk about another berry variety, and this one requires more of a permanent home, and we're talking grapes, both table grapes and wine grapes. Dave Wilson Nursery has uh, plenty of varieties of those, uh, including uh, some American uh, grapes as well. Yeah, so the American grape varieties are probably the most adaptable. They do very well in cold climates, where the European varieties, you know, your, your Red Globes, your your Ruby, your Flame, your Thompson, those are European varieties. In colder climates, it, it, they'll freeze back. Whereas the American varieties, Concord, Interlochen, some of these varieties, you know, they were developed up in, in New York. But uh, like you said, grapes are one that they're not for container gardening. They really do need a trellis type of structure to, to grow on and get established. There's been a, this real big trend for people wanting to plant wine grapes, whether it's Cabernets or Merlots or such. And that's where we're seeing a lot of demand now is the homeowner wants, is doing their own little vineyard. Or if nothing else, it's just kind of have a novelty of having Cabernet grapes out there, <laughs> along with your, you know, your regular table eating grapes. Exactly. And and grapes do need a bit of uh, chill hours, don't they? It's not much. It's like, what, 100 hours or so? They do. The Europeans are really low chill. The American grapes would, you know, require a little bit more. Nothing really substantial. Grapes are another one. Just make sure you give it a lot of sun, full sun. You don't want to be putting that, uh, grapes in an area where it can get too much uh, shade. It, it can develop powdery mildew if you keep the ground a little too moist underneath, and it's in a shady area. If you want to find out more about growing grapes, I bet you can just go to DaveWilson.com, check out their fruit tube videos, and I bet there are some uh, grape videos there. They are. And, you know, we give instructions on how to, you know, prune grapes and how to care for them and, you know, how, how to trellis them and how, how to have success with, with grapes. And you again, just go to the fruit tube video section at DaveWilson.com and you can find everything you need to know about berries and grapes and uh, fruit trees, nut trees. It's all there at DaveWilson.com. Phil Purcell from Dave Wilson, uh, thanks for uh, spending the morning with us talking berries. Yep. Thanks for having me on. The Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast has a lot of information posted at each episode transcripts, links to any products or books or websites mentioned during the show, and other helpful links for even more information. Plus, you can listen to just the portions of the show that interest you. It's been divided into easily accessible chapters. Plus, you'll find more information about how to get in touch with us. Maybe you could leave an audio question without making a phone call. You can do that at SpeakPipe. That's SpeakPipe.com. It's easy. Give it a try. And you just might hear your voice on the Garden Basic podcast. If you're listening to us via Apple Podcasts, put your question in the ratings and reviews section. You can always text us the question and pictures or use your voice to leave a question at 916-292-8964. That's 916-292-8964. 
800-529-8964. You can always use the good old email, fred at farmerfred.com. That's fred at farmerfred.com. And when you leave a question, be sure to tell us where you're from. That will help us greatly to accurately answer your garden questions, because as you know, all gardening is local. In the show notes, you'll find links to our social media outlets as well, where you can leave questions or make comments. Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. And there's a link to the FarmerFred.com website. And thanks for listening. I guess we're going to call this segment of Garden Basics, Can You Dig It? We are standing at the shovel section here at the Green Acres Nursery Store. And Julie Barber is with us. She's a master gardener, also works at Green Acres. But Julie, let's talk about shovels, because if people... If they're starting a first garden or maybe they're not used to buying shovels, all of a sudden they're looking at a row of different shaped shovels, different handled shovels. So let's uh, do something about shoveling basics. So they want to dig. Yeah. What's a good shovel for digging? So it's easy to be a little bit too excited and get a shovel that's very large that can pick up a whole lot all at once. The downside to that is you might find that you wear out sooner. So pick a shovel that has a medium-sized head. If you see one that's meant for a pooper scooper or shoveling snow, it might be too much material and you can wear out a lot sooner. So picking one that's going to just be kind of standard and you get a choice between one that has a flat top straight across and one that is curved. And, and has a point on it. Too. And has a point on it. Yeah. And often they have a little curved bit also where you can put your feet so you can shovel down. Picking the right, the right kind of handle for longevity can also matter. But it's really that head, that part that's going to be digging in the soil that matters the most. I usually get along best with the one with the curved top because I can get a little bit deeper. And the one with the flat top is more for moving a lot of material, but not in a super confined area. The round heads for digging, the, the flat heads is for shoveling. If you want to move mulch, you, you want a flat-headed shovel. Yeah, otherwise it's just too much work and annoying. Then you have different sized heads, too, like you've got smaller heads that are meant for digging, and that would be for, like, uh, little plants or bulbs. Right. They're ideal for bulbs. Some of these are actually marked on them one, two, three, four inches, so you can find out how deep you're going and get the right planting depth for what you purchased. Maybe you're putting in a fence. For that, you want a post hole digger. And yeah. what I like about the post hole digger here, it's actually got depth markings on yeah. it. So you know how, how deep <laughs> you've gone in digging for that post. Because generally when you're sinking a, a wooden post or a metal post, you want to go about one-third the length of that total post. One-fourth to one-third the length of that total post. So if you've got an eight-foot post and you want a six-foot tall fence and then you're going to sink two feet of that into the ground, this one will let you know when you're at two feet. And, and it's helpful for me. It keeps me from cheating. I'm like, gosh, that hole looks good. Yeah. No, no, you got to measure it. <laughs> Let's find out. So it keeps me honest so that the post hole really lasts. And then you've got these really narrow head shovels. And we're looking at this Corona shovel that's uh, 
bright orange too, so you'll never lose it. I like that, the fact that it's very colorful. And, so and we call this one a trench shovel, and this one is about four inches, and then we've got one that's even smaller, I think. Yeah, now a trench shovel has a, a long, narrow head. It, it looks, it, it's four inches wide, and the head itself looks to be about 12 inches long. It, there's a point on the end. And yeah, if you're going to put in a, an irrigation system, you want a trench shovel. Exactly. You don't want to move more dirt than you have to. Get the smaller head. <laughs> yes. And if you're digging bigger trenches, there are bigger shovels that are meant for that purpose. It's uh, Here's one that's 16 inches, and that says it's for a drain pipe. So it's nice that they're labeled so they give you a good idea of what the purpose is. Yeah, it's always kind of cool when you go to a new section and you just look at some of the labels and you realize, oh, there are differences. Because most of us have just inherited one or two shovels from our previous homes, and we're not sure why we had that thing. You can get the right tool, and you'll find that your back and the job is much healthier for it. And then, moving down this aisle here, are some of my favorite devices, spading forks. A spading fork is not a pitchfork. A spading fork actually has wider tines. They're about three-quarters of an inch wide. There are four tines. The tines are about 12 inches long. Handle size varies, but if you have heavy clay soil... I would rather dig in heavy clay soil with a spading fork than a shovel. It's a lot easier. It's a lot easier. And as a reminder, when the soil is super soggy, you might want to hold off a little bit, too. It's just heavy, and it's wet, and it's hard to do. But when you've got those prongs going in, it, the force is a lot easier on you, and you get to use it to your advantage. Exactly. And you're not going to bend the head of a shovel in heavy clay soil because the, the tines uh, will help break up the soil as it yeah. brings it up. That's very nice. And, of course, you, you've got little hand devices too. You've got uh, trowels that are different sizes, different shapes, different purposes. Some even have a serrated edge, which would be great for cutting roots. Exactly. So when you start digging in the soil, you find out that there are some roots in the way, and rather than just hacking at it, you might be able to saw right there in the soil and take those roots out. Yeah, exactly. That's uh, the benefit of, of things like uh, I'm not sure. I, I know that uh, now this one is called a uh, uh, a root slayer soil knife. I, I used to know this as a hori hori knife. Yeah. But uh, it, it the, I mean, it's a great universal tool. It's it's a hand tool. The head is about 12 inches long. It's serrated on one side. It's smooth on the other. And it, it, it's really meant for uh, you can dig holes, break up soil, and cut roots. Yep, exactly right. And that that's super helpful. You could even pick up dog poop with it. I'm not going to. All right. <laughs> if you're out there and that's all you had, you would. Still got one child at home. I'm off the hook so far. All right. Good luck to that. All right. Maybe one piece of advice about hand pruners. Since we're standing in front of the pruners, I noticed that this display of pruners here, and I'm so glad to see this, I think all of them are bypass pruners. They're not anvil pruners. Explain the difference. So bypass, think of a pair of scissors. The two blades pass by each other and it makes a very clean, decent cut without making the plant raggedy. Uh, kind of like when you get a haircut and you don't want split ends. The same thing with the plant. We want a nice, clean cut. And bypass does that for us. The drawback to bypass is it can require a lot of hand strength. So when you come and look for some hand tools, actually pick them up and try them. See what the weight is like. See how far apart the hands are and if you can actually use it. But bypass is almost always the way to go. 
Yeah, the only thing I can think of using an anvil pruner, an anvil pruner is where a blade actually strikes a plate on the opposite arm. Yeah. And that that's great for removing dead wood or, or maybe if you're into a, a cut flower garden. Yeah, but the bigger the material is and the wetter the material is, the, le- the more trouble you're going to have with the anvil type. So it's particularly useful. And then just making sure that you know that the part that opens, the actual cutting part, it'll stay as little as a half of an inch, and then it'll go up maybe to one and three quarters inches. That makes it a heavier item and might wear out your hands sooner. So again, try all of them. See if the mid-sized one works for you, and you can find that you can prune for hours as opposed to just a few minutes. Exactly, and while you're shopping for pruners, get yourself a holster, get yourself a sharpener, maybe even pick up different size pruners like that are meant for flowers, like the little uh, the narrow snippers. Yeah, so out on the patio here, they use the small little snippers. They don't have a lot of strength, but it's for deadheading and keeping the plants really in nice trim. Then there are the bigger items where you're taking off bigger pieces of the plant. And then, of course, there are the biggest items of all for when you're taking out all the winter stuff. You're doing a lot of deadheading. You're doing a lot of taking plants down by many feet. And then, of course, you can go up to loppers and hand saws. There you go. We learned a lot on this quick tip. Julie Barber, thank you. Thank you very much. In a not very famous song of nearly 40 years ago, performance artist Laurie Anderson sang, Language is a Virus. Before that, novelist William S. Burroughs used that line, language is a virus, from outer space. He wrote it in the book, The Ticket That Exploded. It refers to the words we use in everyday conversation that mutate over the years into colloquialisms, popular slang, abbreviations, maybe new terminology based on modern technology. And one of those virus-like terms, which appropriately enough is associated with the coronavirus, is social distancing. In a recent Pointer newsletter for journalism professionals, writer Deborah Lynn Blumberg made a rather astute observation. She wrote, I was speaking with a psychologist today for a story I'm working on. I can't remember, but have you discussed the distinction between social distancing and physical distancing? I still see so many news stories talking about social distancing, while psychologists I talk to in my reporting keep stressing that we should be saying physical distancing instead. Why? Because we shouldn't be socially distant from people right now, since that's a negative for our mental health. We need to connect with other people in safe ways. This could be something good for journalists to think about. Or remember, as they're writing, especially as we get into winter months and many people grapple with SAD, seasonal affective disorder, which therapists believe may be worse for people this year. Well, Deborah is exactly right. Social distancing can, according to researchers, even have a physical impact on people, particularly seniors. And you know what I'm talking about if you have friends or relatives in an assisted living facility, nursing home, or convalescent hospital. You might have noticed a decline in their mental and physical health this year. Well, what changed? The big one, the lack of physical contact with you, because you're not allowed a face-to-face visit in person. They, as you, miss that physical contact of the touch of a hand, a hug, a kiss. For many of these people, they can't even assemble with their peers in the facility's dining room because of fear of the spread of coronavirus. 
For us muddling through our daily lives right now, we do need that physical space for our own safety. That's true. But that doesn't mean you can't share a kind word with your masked compatriots while standing on your assigned, well-spaced square in that supermarket checkout line. Nor does it mean that you have to give up gardening. If anything, we need more contact with our plants. Touch them, smell them, and yes, talk to them. Talk to the birds, the bees, the cabbage worms, too. Regarding those cabbage worms, you don't have to talk nicely to them, though. But when it comes to people and interacting with people, you can still maintain a physical distance, but be social. So why not help out those people who are in the assisted living facilities and the nursing homes and maybe send them a nice bouquet of fresh flowers? You can either order it online and have it sent to them or drop off your own bouquet of homegrown flowers at the front desk. You may not be able to touch your friends and relatives, but at least they'll be able to touch the things that you touched. Many psychologists have recognized what we are going through and the fact that we wear masks in public. And what you need to do is learn how to smile through a mask. The AARP offers these tips. Use body language. Waving, thumbs up, virtual hugs, or clapping are all good ways to convey emotion. Also recommended is clasping your hands high on your chest to signal pleasure. And you can also smile using your shoulders, the posture of your neck, or your eyebrows to convey emotions. They can transmit subtle signals about how you feel. And yes, you can smile under your mask. Actually smile. Now, maybe people can't see your smile, but they can see the rays of your cheeks and the little lift below your eyes. Smiling sends a message to your brain also to release chemicals that gives you a mood boost. Also, focus on articulation. Without the ability to see lips during exchanges, it's important to speak clearly and articulate. And you can always name your emotions if you're feeling sad, upset, or happy. Give voice to those sentiments. People can't read it on your face now, so it's incumbent on us to describe how we feel. And what about that seasonal affective disorder? For the gardener, make time for the garden. Maybe do it early in the morning. And spending any time in your garden is going to bring a smile to your face. And those flowers you have growing in your backyard, that could bring a smile to someone else's face who may need that smile more than you. Garden Basics comes out every Tuesday and Friday, and it's available just about anywhere podcasts are handed out. And that includes Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Overcast, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, and uh, hey Alexa, play the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast, would you please? Thank you for listening, subscribing, and leaving comments. We appreciate it.